0: What's up, everybody? Come on, don't leave me hanging up here like that. What's up, everybody? Well, I love being a part of the Redemption Church family, and I hope you you know that when one part of the body hurts, Scripture says we all hurt together. I know that Flagstaff has been facing much transition, and God is faithfully uh, walking you through all of that. But I also know this. That as you go through what you're going through, you're not going through it alone. And so I pray that you know you have a church throughout all of the state of Arizona that's loving for you, praying for you, walking through all of this with you. And I know you would do that for the rest of the congregations as we walk through. I love being in the Redemption Church family. But I will tell you this, all the Redemption Churches are very different. Very different, just like all families are very different. So, I gotta give you a little pre warning. I get a little lit when I preach, okay? I come from a different context than Flagstaff. Let me tell you, I'm in Flagstaff, I'm the tourist, okay? So last time we came up, I brought my girls, two of them are sitting here, I brought them last time, and so this time I'm like, we're gonna come again, we get a hotel, we come and do all the tourist things yesterday, and I told them, hey, you all can get your own, like, uh, souvenir. So they all picked a T-shirt, I get back to the hotel, they're putting their T-shirts on, and my youngest daughter decided to get one that said, getting high in flagstaff. So uh, if my wife was here, she wouldn't have let that happen. But as a dad, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty. You like the color? Get it. I should have read the shirt before I got home. Too late. We're getting high in flagstaff. That's what's happening. Yeah, that's right. It's the elevation, is what they were talking about. Um, so that, that's that's it. Um, I, I love I love what God is doing through the Book of John with us. I love what God is doing through the Book of John. And 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 if you know anything about me, which you shouldn't. Uh, people say I say everything is the best. So like when when I go to a restaurant, I'm like that that's the best restaurant or or it's the absolute worst. There's no middle ground with me, right? It's not. Mwah. I'm like this is my favorite or I hate it with a passion, right? And so when I when I when I go through a book of the Bible, every time I go through a book, they're like every book you go through is the best book. I'm like yes, that is true, but John really is the best, right? until we get to the next study. And then I'm gonna enjoy it. But I will tell you this, it's been some of my favorite times studying the life of Jesus. And here's how I have felt as we've been going through the book of John. I think John gives us a behind the scenes glimpse into the life of Jesus. That invites you closer into a relationship with jesus himself you see john the author was known as one who knew god matter of fact he was according to kind of theological study he was the first theologian he had a seminary but the reason people would go to his seminary was not because of what they wanted to know mentally they wanted to know jesus like john knew jesus and the way he wrote was different than all the other synoptic gospels because he was inviting you. You should feel, as you are studying John, you should feel invited. Not just to know more about Jesus, but to know him. I've been married to my wife now for 23 years. I've got five children, three girls with me now. i got two boys I'm so thankful for the relationship that I get to have, but I will tell you this, the power of my relationship with my wife after all of these years is not just that I acknowledge that she exists. So many of us relegate our faith to acknowledging that Jesus exists. We go, hey, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. I believe he exists. There's no power in a relationship that only acknowledges the existence of somebody. What really has power in a relationship is not just the acknowledgement of my wife's existence. I know her and she knows me. I know her patterns and I know her facial expressions and I know when she's feeling different and she knows when I'm feeling different. The more more we walk through life together, the more we get to know the patterns of each other's life. And those patterns and cadences are what allow us to draw close to one another and we get to know each other in ways that others cannot know us Just because they have not had the time and the space and commitment. I believe as we read the book of John, we should not be reading it just to get more head knowledge about Jesus. We should want to be learning his cadences, his rhythms the way he lives. We shouldn't want to just intellectually ascend and intellectually acknowledge that Jesus exists, but we should desire to know him and to see how he is operating with him like the disciples who were what? Following Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, we should not just settle for acknowledgement of Jesus's existence. But by the Spirit, we get to learn the way he lives and acts and moves and, 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 would, and would interact today with a blind man. As we approach a text, like I, I don't know if Anthony did this on purpose. He's like, listen, this is... 41 verses or something like that, and I'm supposed to preach. So let's just have Aaron come and try to preach. I can't even say my name in 40 minutes, let alone (laughs) preach 41 verses, right? Like this is gonna be impossible for me to dissect each one of these, but I think there's a blessing in it. Here's the blessing. We get to look to see how Jesus would interact and see his cadences and see the way he would walk through this narrative and this story. So I'm going to be forced to kind of tell you the story as we go. But I want you to be in John chapter 9. Get your Bibles open to it. So you can follow along with me as we go through this story together. First I want us to look at verse 1. And we'll have it up there on the screen. But I want to highlight one thing. It says this. And he passed by and saw a man blind from birth. I want you to notice the word, he saw him. I want you to notice how Jesus notices what others do not notice. There's such a beauty in just recognizing while others would pass by this man, Jesus notices him. The man didn't cry out. The man did not speak up. The man didn't even know Jesus was passing by. There's something beautiful about seeing someone. There's something beautiful about seeing someone who others do not see. This man had spent all of his life not being noticed. We're going to see that as the story unfolds when God does a work in his life. They didn't even recognize him because they didn't even notice him before. They have a huge debate in the middle whether it really is him or not. I want you to notice what Jesus notices. Jesus notices those who others overlook. Jesus notices those who others overlook. I, I want to tell you, every time I come to a text where I preach about someone who is blind in Scripture, I think of a man in our church by the name of Matthew who was born blind. He started coming to our church, and the moment I approached a text where he knew we were coming to one, he wanted to talk to me, and he said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about how are you going to preach this text about a man born blind, and Matthew began to open up his heart to me about how he's been in churches in his life where the preacher preached about a man born blind, and he felt misunderstood. And alienated and he felt like when we preach a text about a man born blind we should probably talk to somebody who's been born blind Matthew has helped me to understand things that I may never have noticed in my life because it wasn't my lived experience but Jesus Does not overlook the people that feel overlooked when they come into rooms like this. So often, when we go through our lives, we have people that we notice, and we have people that we see, and we have people who we recognize. We are not prone to look for the outsiders. We are not prone to notice those who are not in our friend circles. We are not prone to notice the ones who, who are forgotten, kind of shoved into the corner. But it is powerful to be seen. Have you ever felt unnoticed? Have you ever felt unrecognized? There was a man, a friend of mine, a pastor, who his wife died and after his wife died, he has three boys. He wrote an article that caused my heart to melt. He talked about how he feels unseen now that his wife has passed. She used to just see him. In every room he was in, she would notice him. She had he had somebody who would see him. Now he feels invisible because She is gone. And many of us know what it feels like to feel invisible or unnoticed. But Jesus notices the overlooked. He sees him. Now, there's such power in this that if you really just stop and think that even the blind man could not see Jesus, but Jesus saw him. And saw him in a way that nobody else had ever seen him. They saw him so, Jesus saw him so intently that it caused his disciples in verse 2 to ask Jesus about what he was looking at. It wasn't just like, oh, he notices him. Jesus had to have stopped in such a way that his disciples are like, he's really noticing this guy. And look at what verse 2 shows us. They asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Was he born blind? Or that that he was born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now this question that the disciples are asking, notice this is not Pharisees asking this question. This is not enemies. These are disciples of Jesus who are trying to figure out an age-old question. Based upon the culture that they're raised in, what they want to figure out when they see someone who is suffering is they want to figure out whose fault is it that they're suffering? It's kind of related to the idea of karma. Someone had to do something for him to face this kind of suffering or blindness. Someone had to deserve it if he was going to turn it. It was either him or his parents. This question is continuing to stir in the disciples' minds. Why? Because they did not have a category that God could have done it. There was nothing in them that could say this was God's fault or or that God would do it for any other purpose. There had to be a reason. Whose fault is it? And I want to put this equation up on the screen real quick. Uh, This is what they had as far as an equation. Sin and bad behavior always leads to suffering and consequences. The only way you get suffering and consequences is sin and bad behavior. So if this is the equation that they're living under and you see someone who is outcast or who is overlooked or who is uh, uh, suffering, the only way they could have got there is through sin and bad behavior. In the first century, people saw suffering and wondered what did they do to offend God? What made him angry? And so what they would do is direct their anger at the person who was suffering. We still see that today. Many people have this same perception on life. When they see someone suffering, they had to do something wrong or their nation or their community or their parents or their heritage. It had to be them. So because of that, we direct our anger towards them. And now in the 21st century, not only do we direct our anger towards them, many people look at suffering and get angry at God if there is suffering. Because they are convinced of their own innocence. Here's, here's what I, I want us to see what we try to do is simplify our lives by building mathematical or scientific equations to try to figure out problems. The only categories we have is, if this is the answer, then this has to be the equation. And we do not allow for mystery or complexity. And when Jesus answers their question, he answers it outside of their equations here's here's what he actually puts up if you could put the next slide up my friend he says this suffering actually this kind of suffering is leading to god's glory that this is bringing about god's glory you see this in the text when jesus says it was not that this man sinned verse three or his parents but the works of god might be displayed in him You see, what you're seeing in verse three as they asked the question is Jesus is giving them a whole other equation that this is actually a work of God that would be meant to display his glory. And And I'm gonna tell you, he leaves it with much mystery and complexity. We need to understand that Jesus has a whole different equation here for suffering. Uh, I I want us to, to, to see now, as Jesus goes into this kind of conversation, we can't camp here very much, but I want us to see how we as a society can be more aware of sin and suffering than we can be aware of grace and God's glory. When we see sin and suffering, what we want to do is simplify it and find out who's at fault rather than understanding grace and the glory of God. You see, the gospel gives you different lenses for seeing the world. The gospel is not just a good story. It changes the way you see everything and what Jesus is doing with his disciples is giving them a whole new way to see the world a whole new world you know a new fantastic point of view Aladdin might have had it right Church, you have to understand when you come into a new discipleship gospel paradigm, the ways you've been shaped in culture and the world shift, you have to see the world differently. What it does is it gives us eyes to see things we've never seen and it gives us equations we never knew existed. The gospel makes us far more aware Of grace and glory than sin and suffering what are your eyes drawn to are you constantly trying to figure out the equation for pain and suffering or are you seeing the ways in which God's grace and glory are being put on display notice immediately what Jesus does We can't spend time here, so you're going to have to study this on your own. Jesus starts doing new creation. He gets in the ground like like John loves using new creation narrative. Like uh, Jesus is the light. Jesus is uh, the new, he's the one who's ushering in new creation. Jesus reaches into the dirt and forms out of the dirt. Like this is all new creation narrative. And what you're seeing in this is that Jesus immediately moves into healing. He says he's the light. This is new creation narrative. He reaches into the dirt. He spits into it and anoints it, puts his DNA into the dirt, and then puts it on his eyes and sends him away to be baptized and to be healed to a pool called Scent. It also sounds a lot like what we're called to do, to go baptize and make the disciples of all nations, and send them. It's a lot of mission language, new creation language. It is a gospel narrative right in front of your eyes if you would look at it. It's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus does. He brings and makes new creation. God makes us new. It's a good place to say amen. Two of you, praise God. Jesus is healing his creation and he's making us new. Now notice what happens. He makes this man so new that in verses 13 through 18, you'll have to study this on your own because I'm moving as fast as I can through a huge chunk of scripture that Anthony gave to me. He comes back and none of of the neighbors recognize him. They start arguing, (laughs) notice this. They're not even acknowledging him. They're just like, is that him, is that him? And he's like, yeah, it's me. No, it can't be him. Like it's a full out argument in front of him about him without him even being heard. And he's giving testimony, yes, it's me, can't be. They go through a full discussion about if this is really him and he keeps telling them over and over again how this is him. And and, and this just reminds me, I, I get to work with people who come out of really, really broken situations. I I feel like I really experienced church for the first time when I got out of clean kind of like Christianity and got into the dirt with people and realized that God loves taking things and making it out of the dirt and taking people we would never choose. And, And our church is filled with people who you would look at now and you would go, oh my goodness, is that really their story? And I'm telling you, I have sat with people who've told me their story and I've gone like this. There's no way that's you. You're so different. You're so radically different. You're telling me life filled with all kinds of addictions and and all kinds of struggle and all kinds of pain and all kinds of abuse and all kinds of murder and all kinds of imprisonment, all kinds of things, and this is who you are now. There's no way. Here's what I love about what the gospel does. It's unbelievable. The healing power of Jesus is unbelievable. So many stories within the church. That when we get together as pastors and leaders, we love to tell what are called uh, uh, God stories. Because we just want to hear what God is doing. And you hear these stories, and if you could just see where God is working within even our church, just Redemption Church, across the state, or just even yet Flagstaff, I guarantee you God is making things new. He's making people new. And if you could just see what he is doing, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So much so, it's hard for us to understand. Could it be, church, that our biggest struggle with knowing God is we're trying to understand him rationally rather than trust him relationally? I I want to say some of your biggest hindrance in knowing God is you're trying to understand God. You're trying to understand his mystery and the way he works and how he works and the things he does and the way he moves and and the the places he goes and, and the people he reaches out to and the places he sees. And this is what drives them crazy. And I'll guarantee you there's some of you in here is this is what drives you crazy. Is that God's work is so unbelievable, they go, we're going to have to take it to the religious leaders. And then look at what the religious leaders do. Look, Jesus and the religious leaders do not have a great relationship. Can Can we say amen to that? We've been studying John long enough to go, there's a little bit of a riff there. They want to kill him, like the end of the last chapter, they're picking up stones, and Jesus is running off, and and Jesus is calling them like, you know, uh, sons of the devil, and you know, it's not a good, it's strained, to say the least. And so now, they take this man who's healed, in verses 13 all the way even to 34, and The self-righteous go into their modes of operation. I want you to notice, because you'll see this pattern in other places. If you could put this slide up for me. There is a pattern in which self-righteous people work. It's the way they always operate. Now, I pray that as you see this, you could both allow the spirit to convict your heart if these are patterns in which you find yourself operating. But I, I want you to just notice immediately how they operate because you'll see this pattern throughout scripture. This is the way this these religious leaders treated the apostles. This is the way they treated Jesus. This is what ultimately led to his death. And this is what ultimately even you look at the book of Acts, this is what they did to Paul. This is what they did to Peter. This is the pattern of self-righteousness. First You immediately start with suspicion. The man comes to them. They actually no, he doesn't go to them. They bring this man who's just been healed. You wish when you just get healed, people would be like, Let's go! But they're like, Nah, it's not him. And then they go, Let's let's see if it's real. They immediately start with suspicion there's something about self-righteousness that when god does something that you can't understand your immediate reaction is not to believe the story let's interrogate first i don't want to be gullible the greatest sin of self-righteousness is gullibility We don't want to be gullible, so let's not admit that God can move in ways we don't understand. Let us now interrogate the man. So instead of celebrating the work of God in this man's life, they interrogate him. Talk about ruining a miracle. They start with suspicion. 18 through 22, 23, even after he just says, listen, guys, I don't know I was blind now I see that's all I can tell you I, I'm not trying to get into an argument I was blind now I see It's like you can tell the blind the blind man is just trying to celebrate what God has done in his life and they're they're going after him and he's just going can I just just forget it happened and I just don't care I was blind now I see I I can't tell you anything else They don't believe him, so they go to the parents. Then they spend 18 through 23 going after the parents. Is this your son? Was he as blind? And here, notice this. In fact finding, when you go after all of those who are even family, they're afraid to speak up for the man because they know if they don't say what you want them to say, you'll ostracize them. So the parents won't even say anything. One, they won't acknowledge that he's a son. They just say, he's a grown man. Let him speak for himself. And it literally says they're afraid of what will come against them if they acknowledge that he was born blind. So then they go into fact-finding. And here's what they're trying to do. Fact-finding is not trying to find truth. It's trying to prove things wrong. It's trying to find false witnesses who you can intimidate to say what you want to say to prove you were right. Fact-finding is all about proving what you're right. Isn't it amazing that when people are self-righteous, they'll find every article that agrees with them? Everything that proves they're right. It's not fact-finding. It's trying to prove you're right. But can I just tell you, for those who are self-righteous and all about fact-finding, people are scared to tell you the truth because you won't listen even if you hear it. And then what do they do? Verse 24 through 33 They don't like their fact-finding, they don't like their suspicion, and they get to a place where then they start doing false accusation. It doesn't matter what the truth is, nor what anybody says, now they just start accusing. They start going after Jesus. Now here's what they're doing. Again, they're calling Jesus an outright sinner in verses 24 through 33. They say, Jesus is a sinner, there's no way he could do this, and then they call Jesus a bastard. Listen, this false accusation is saying because of who his mother was or because of who Jesus's parents are, there's no way he's even a wanted child. They go after his lineage and then they attack his, his his that he's a sinner. Both of them, if we if we believe in Jesus, we know those are both false accusations. The perfect son of God being told that he's a sinner and couldn't do this kind of work. And then his lineage being attacked. And then when that doesn't work, go after the blind man. And verse 34, they start discrediting him. <laughs> can I Can I just... Show you this pattern and show you that it is as old as satanic work. The enemy works in this pattern and self-righteous people have always worked in this pattern. And people of God, we should not follow this pattern. This is the pattern of the self-righteous. This is the pattern of Those whose father is the devil. Family doesn't start with suspicion. It starts with acceptance and belovedness. Family is not all trying to prove themselves right. They just want God to be glorified and to be seen and the truth to be put on display. Family is not about false accusation. It's about grace and love and forgiveness. Family is not about discrediting and disclaiming and, 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 and discriminating against those who are disabled. They completely discriminate against this man who has, who has been blind. Will you teach us and call him disabled? I mean, you're talking about pure discrimination and discredit, devaluing this man. This is not how the family of God acts. That's why God says, that's why Jesus says, my father Doesn't act this way. Now, I I will tell you this. Anthony, how much time do I have left? I lost track of time. Oh, okay. All right, well, don't tell a Pentecostal preacher that. You don't do that. I love this, and I'm not going to make too much out of it, but I love the personality of this uh, man born blind who is now healed. I love his personality. I love that God in his wisdom, and John as an author inspired by the Spirit, shows a little bit of this man's personality. And why do I love that? Because they have dehumanized him, overlooked him, and discredited him. And what God does in his wisdom through the author John is show us a little bit of this man who nobody's ever noticed, his personality. This dude does not care about standing up to the religious leaders. He handles them so beautifully. (laughs) Have you been watching as Jesus has been handling self-righteous people? Now you get to watch as this man born blind who has now been healed handles it. I want you to notice, first, they come to him again a second time. And I want you to notice what they do to him. They start interrogating him again. And in their interrogation of him, he begins to speak to them in such a way that is is so profound. They start going after him in verse, uh, I think it's 24. Yeah, 24. And he says, uh, they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And this is what he says, whatever he is, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't even know. One thing I do know, I once was blind, but now I see. Look at how he first acknowledges. First, he's not afraid to admit what he does not know. Here's what self-righteous tries to do. It tries to take you away from celebrating the new creation work that God's done in your life and get you off on things that, that, that you don't, that are, that are beyond whatever the, that you can, and beyond what they can know. They try to get you off task, and what he does is he doesn't get off task. What he says is, hey, listen, I don't even know, but here's one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see You're wanting me to explain the miracle, and I don't even know how it happened. And he focuses on the true story. And then not only does he focus on the true story, the more they try to go after him, he uses sarcasm beautifully. There's nothing more beautiful and sarcasm to a self righteous person. <laughs> they start going after him more, and he goes back after them with sarcasm and goes, Listen, you're so obsessed with this guy, I'm starting to think you want to be his disciple. You're talking about Jesus so much, do you want to follow him? I mean, he's just like, You love this guy a lot. What a great response. Listen, he healed me. Get over it, is basically what it, and they're like, they can't get over it. You, You love him. You're obsessed with him. And then they turn on him. I mean, his sarcasm did not go over with, they missed it, you know? And they turn on him and they start going after him. And then at the end of the story, I I, I want you to study this on your own. What does he do? He emphasizes something they can't understand, mystery. He says, I love it. He goes, it's amazing that you don't know. He like celebrates that these people who are supposed to be know-it-alls don't know. There's nothing like mystery that drives self-righteous people Not. I'm going to end with this and and, and go into this last text because I I want us to look at how the beauty of the gospel is. But one thing I've been talking to about pastors in redemption, there's something within redemption where when we talk about something God's done in our lives, I've had pastors, leaders, people come up to me, and God has like met them and done miracles and then they're like trying to tell what God's done and they're apologizing. Like, hey sorry, I don't know how to explain this but I was literally praying and God like met me. I'm sorry, I know this freaks you out. I'm so sorry to tell it to you this way. It's like, why are you apologizing for Jesus? Why are you apologizing that people can't categorize? Why are you apologizing for mystery? Why are you apologizing for things that logic cannot comprehend? Why are we apologizing when Jesus does miracles for us? Church, if Redemption Church is really going to lean into what God has done and what he does to make new creation, I'm going to tell you this. We cannot rationally argue people into the kingdom. When someone comes to know Christ, it's A miracle. It's not because we came up with a real good logical argument to get them into the kingdom. God makes us new by His Spirit, and not always will we or others understand that. We should be willing to boast in the work of God and be amazed in the mystery of our creator. What we see at the end is after he just handles them brilliantly. I laughed studying this. I'm like, man, he's, I want to be like that guy. They go after him and run him out of the synagogue. And look at verse 35 and we'll end here. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus saw him, and Jesus found him. Jesus saw him, and Jesus found him. I want you to notice this. The first miracle when Jesus saw him was that he would be made whole, that in his suffering it would bring glory to God. And in that glory, in the way God healed him, it brought him even into more suffering. People came after him and attacked him. But even though he gained physical sight, it isn't until the end of the chapter that he truly sees why does he truly see because now he truly sees who jesus is he finds him and says to him do you believe and he answered to him in verse 36 sir that i may believe in him and jesus said you have seen him there it is now He's helping him. You see him, and you see who he is. He is speaking to you. Notice, Jesus is healing his eyes once again. Now his eyes, the eyes of his heart are being opened, and now he's seeing who truly Jesus is. And here's what he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. and notice this the Pharisees watch this interaction and in verse 40 put that up on the screen they say this are we blind i love this text here's why i love this text because you start thinking that a blind man is being healed and by the end of the text you realize the people we think are blind actually aren't blind and the ones we think who see actually see The blind man grew in his awareness of who Jesus was. And by the end, the Pharisees are asking, Are we the ones blind? Why? Because at the end of the story, what we see is what true sight is. It's not when your eyes have been opened physically. True sight is when you see Jesus. True sight is when you see and believe and trust in Jesus and worship Him. True sight is when Jesus sees you and finds you when everybody else. Casts you out. True sight. Comes. Through healing. And revelation. And not through mental asc- ascension. And logic. True sight. Happens when Jesus breaks into your life. Not when you find Jesus. But when he finds you. True sight is a miracle. And the one who had the advantage to seeing that was the one who lacked physical sight and couldn't depend on his own eyes. Because we walk by something else than by sight, we walk by faith. We could be the ones who are disadvantaged, while the ones who are disadvantaged actually have the advantage. If you know Jesus, it's a miracle. If your eyes are open, To the reality of who Jesus is. It's because he saw you. And he found you. And he revealed himself to you. How can you be arrogant about revelation when you did nothing to see it? Your eyes were open to it. If you know Jesus... We should be overwhelmed by the miracle of salvation. We should be like this man, believing and worshiping because we see true life. The only response to revelation is trust and worship. And then there could be some of us in here who respond a very different way, just like the Pharisees at the end of the chapter who said, Are we also blind? Church, there could be some of you in this room right now who are realizing I've been operating in self righteous patterns. I've been living trying to investigate, fact find, and trying to discover things in my own strength. I've been leaning on my own abilities rather than the power of Christ. And no matter how hard I try, I find myself struggling with mystery. Struggling with worship, struggling with trusting Jesus because I feel like I have to get it with all of my own reason and all my own intellect. I'm the one who has to ascend to him. But the beauty of the gospel is that I didn't work my way up. I didn't pick myself up and get to him. He saw me. He opened my eyes. And so what should we do in this moment Ask. Ask. Trust and worship. We go to a time of contemplation at the end of our service because here's what I want us to do. In our time of prayer, I want you to either worship him And thank him for how he has opened your eyes and that you've got to see. You know who you were and you know who God has made you as a new creation. You know that he saw you and found you and rescued you. Right now is a time in your time of contemplation for you to just worship and believe and trust. And then there's others in here who need to be asking God, open my eyes. Free me from my self-righteousness and cover me with your grace. Father, as we go into this time of listening, would you, by your spirit, meet with us in our seats? Would you open our eyes? Would you reach down into this room and allow us to see, to truly see, to believe and to trust in you Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Spend a few minutes in silence listening to his voice.